Uh, scripture I'll be reading tonight is from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the one coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In verse 11 through 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son." Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, is, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God, we ask that you would honor the reading of your word, that there would be a freshness to it. 
We ask that You'd open up our hearts and our minds to receive this Word. And Lord, I pray for me that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may Your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I actually preached on Luke 15, I think it was either a second or third week of our church. It's when we were in our living room and there was just a a handful of you there. And I'm going to give the same introduction that I gave then. And that's that I might preach, actually I know I will preach better sermons. um, But I will never preach a more important one than the next two weeks looking at this story. Uh, Up to this point in Luke, we've seen Jesus over and over. He is attacking two groups. Um, Two people, different groups with different worldviews. And and we've called them the irreligious and the religious. And he consistently has been passionately arguing against them. The irreligious view is that there is no God and you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. And then there's the religious worldview and that, no, you need to live a good moral life and earn God's favor. And that's how you can earn salvation. And God, Jesus has been consistently chopping that view down and saying, no, those views are wrong. You cannot relate to God in those ways. There's this new view, and it's to relate to God, to come to God through me. He gives them the gospel. Not religion, not irreligion, but the gospel. And it's here in Luke 15 that you see this probably more clearly than any place else in Scripture. Jesus here, he gives us this radical new way of understanding what does it mean to be lost? What does it mean to be saved? How do we relate to God? Luke begins chapter 15 by telling us that sinners and tax collectors were drawing near to Jesus. Um, And don't think of a tax collector here as like, you know, a dishonest IRS agent, you know, stealing money from you. That's not how they view them. Uh, The Jews of this day, they viewed tax collectors as traitors. Uh, These were people who had switched their allegiances and decided to now work for Rome. Uh, they They were now working for the Roman government, the very government that was oppressing them, the very government that was killing them. And so if you were a Jew and you met a tax collector, you would think, you are responsible for the murder of some of my friends, some of my families. You justify murder. There was an absolute hatred towards tax collectors. Then you have sinners here. And and sinners, you know, today everybody says freely, we're sinners. It had a different connotation then. To be a sinner... Man, you were really bad. You you could not come into the temple and worship. You were not allowed to come in and make sacrifices. To be a sinner would be you were a prostitute. You were were a drug addict. You You were something along those lines that, no, I'm sorry, but the church doors are not open to you. The problem here, at least according to the Pharisees, was that the tax collectors and the sinners were the ones flocking to Jesus. These these despised, evil people were all around Jesus, and Jesus was eating with them. And when you ate with somebody in this day, that was a sign of acceptance. And they kept saying, no, no, wait a second, these people don't even belong in church, and yet they're following you around? 
And it says Jesus was receiving them. Look at verse 2. It says, And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now this word receive there, it sounds like a passive term. You're just taking somebody who comes to you. But actually it's a very active term in Scripture. Uh, You find this earlier in Luke chapter 2 when Simeon, he is, is translated as waiting for the Messiah. And every day he went to the temple and he waited. He eagerly was looking. He was receiving the Messiah. Or Anna the prophetess, when she went, it says that she was eagerly waiting for the redemption of Israel. That's the same word. So when the Pharisees say that he is receiving these tax collectors and sinners, what what they're saying is he goes after them. He goes to where they are. He goes to the street corners and he looks for them. Every day he is pursuing them. He's not just sitting there waiting for them to come and you know, grace his presence. He goes after them, searches them out. And we see this receiving here immediately in, the, in these two parables right after this. We get a picture of what receiving looks like. The first parable is of a man losing his sheep. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when the woman later in the next story, when she loses her coins, it says she turns on her lamps and she looks diligently for it. That's what it means to receive as you're going after. You're looking diligently until you find what you have lost. And this is how Jesus pursues sinners. He pursues them with all of his effort. It's his mission to find them. He he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so don't ever think that you are a sinner who's gone too far. That, you know, I've just done so much that Jesus would never come looking for me. And even if he did come looking for me, it would be to judge me. That's not what happens. When, When this person is found, there is a party. There's an absolute time of rejoicing. More joy over one sinner that repents than of the 99 who don't. Now before trying to, you know, leave here, muster up all of your strength to go into the world and be like Jesus and pursue tax collectors and pursue sinners, I think first you need to just sit and marvel at that. Marvel at the Lord we worship. That he pursues us with, with such passion. Come to grips with that. Come, come to adore that and have it change your heart. Let's look at the most famous parable, what we would call the parable of the prodigal son. It's actually a story about two sons and a gracious father. You need to remember that there's those two groups There's two groups. There's the tax collectors and sinners, and then there's the Pharisees and the scribes. And these are the two groups, the irreligious and the religious, that Jesus is addressing when he gives this parable. And those two groups of people correspond to the two sons. Obviously, the prodigal son who goes off and and wastes all the money, he's representative of the irreligious people. And then you have the elder brother who stays and 
He represents the very religious people. He's the Pharisees. He is the scribes. And actually, this parable is more about them than it is about the, religi- the irreligious person. It is more about the, the person who lived in the Bible Belt, grew up going to church, and is a very good moral person. That's who this parable is for. And the people who heard this parable, they didn't leave all misty-eyed thinking, oh, wow, what a gracious God. They left furious when they heard it. It shook their world. Because Jesus is calling them lost. Now, in many ways, I feel like I've been studying this passage in depth ever since I had Natalie, our four-year-old now. Um, And watching Caroline and Natalie grow up together. Um, Caroline is seven, the firstborn. She's responsible. She does what she is told. She's a rule follower. She is respectful. At night, she gets a sheet of paper and she makes a to-do list of everything she is going to do the following day so she can maximize her day. That's Caroline. Then there's Natalie. Natalie likes to, um, I'll say this graciously, she likes to bend the rules, stretch them to the limits. She, she has to be forced to do things like clean up toys, and, and which she might clean up a toy, and then she doesn't do anything else. She's lazy in that regards. She doesn't really listen to us. And usually Caroline will go and put up the rest of the toys, and then Caroline will come to us and tell us how good she was for doing it and how bad Natalie was for not. <laughs> uh, the story that always stick to, sticks in my mind is the best example of my two kids is something was broken in our house, and I got both kids to come forward, and I said, Caroline, tell me what happened. And so she gives me a a very detailed explanation of how this item came to be broken and a very rational explanation of why she was not to be held responsible. And I said, okay. I said, Natalie, will you tell me what happened? And she looked at me and she goes, na, 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 (laughs) na. And then she was off. And and, uh, I was like, what a a difference in the two kids there. You, You can see those family dynamics here. You could see them, at least the the roots of them here, and they they grew into something far more evil. But you've got that older brother, the rule follower, the one who works hard, the one who's respectful. Then you have that passionate, second-born, wild, lazy, wants to get out of there. The bottom line is, with these two brothers, though, they actually both are in rebellion. They both are self-centered. And they both hate their father. We're going to look at the younger son this week, and we're going to look at the older son next. Look at verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, in this culture, if a father had two sons, the older son would get two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger son would get a third. If you were a daughter, you got nothing. Sorry, it was a very man-dominated culture here. And, and so the, the older son had the two-thirds, the younger had a third. And when the younger son says, can I have my inheritance now, he's asking for a third of all of his father's possessions and properties. 
To ask for your inheritance now was very disrespectful. This never happened. What the younger son is essentially telling his dad is, I wish you were dead. I wish you would quit living so I could go ahead and get my inheritance now. And as you expect the father at this point to slap his child across the face, which would be deserved, be expected, and to say, get out of here. But instead, you get the first surprise of the story. The father doesn't. The father gives him what he asked for. And he divides his property between them. Now, every commentary points this out. That the word for property here is actually bios, where we get the word life. That's actually what it means, is life. There's another word that he could have used for property, but, but he doesn't. The father divides his life out between them. Um, if I went to my mom right now, and I said, hey, mom, I want my inheritance now. I mean, it'd be pretty disrespectful, even more so in this day, but it'd be disrespectful now. And then if my mom decided, okay, fine, I'll give it to you, she would say, but there's, there's a problem. I mean, your inheritance is tied up in the house. It's tied up in the cars. It's, it's, it's tied up in the furniture. It's, it's in my retirement. I'd be like, I know, but I want a third of it now. And that would mean she'd have to sell the house. She'd have to sell her furniture. She'd have to, she'd have to uh, liquefy her assets. Basically, the life she knew would be over. She wouldn't have her home. She wouldn't have any of that, that life that she once had grown comfortable with because that would all be gone. And it's the exact same here. That's why they say he divided up his life. At this point, the father's life was fractured. Having to get rid of the home, having to get rid of some of his property, having to, to get that money so he could give it to his child. And then the son takes it and goes off, not caring about the the carnage he has left behind. And he goes off and he uh, wastes all of the money away. Um, The term prodigal, according to uh, my dictionary on my computer, means spendthrift, extravagant to a degree bordering on recklessness. And he is a prodigal son. He goes off and he wastes all of this money away. Um, And eventually he finds himself broke. He finds himself working in a pigsty, longing for pods, which nobody knows what the heck pods are, but he is longing to eat these pods. And there's no worse job if you're a Jewish male than having to work with pigs. There's no more unclean profession. And so finally, he wakes up. Actually, it says he came to his senses. He came to his senses. Now, nobody can just decide, hey, I'm going to come to my senses. That's not something that you just muster up and say, all right, today I'm going to come to my senses. Coming to your senses is something that has to happen to you. It's something outside that hits you. You know, a smelling salt that wakes you up. Somebody slapping you across the face. Something that wakes up and you're like, okay, okay." you come to your senses and then you can respond and Any person who has come to Jesus realizes that God had to basically slap them. 
God had to wake them up. There was an outside influence. They didn't just suddenly muster it up to come and follow him. And that's what you see here. And then he decides, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say, I have sinned against heaven and before you. What you see here is both a vertical repentance, I have sinned against heaven, and this horizontal repentance and against you. And both of those things are necessary for real repentance. And in that order, you have to realize first you have sinned against the Lord and then you have sinned against a person. After King David committed adultery and murder, um, he, he wrote a very famous psalm, probably his most famous psalm. Actually, take that back. Psalm 23 is pretty famous. His second most famous psalm, Psalm 51, um, in which he says this, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And, and you read this, and every time I read this, I, I think this. I'm like, you're, you're cra- against God alone? Tell that to Bathsheba, who you raped. Tell that to Uzziah, who you killed. You certainly sinned against them. But King David, when he's writing this down, he goes, no, against you and against you alone I sin, because he realizes that the root of those horizontal sins was at first he had, he had violated this relationship. Before he ever committed adultery uh, and raped Bathsheba, he had already given up on the love of his life in God. He'd already committed adultery there. And he knew that's where his transgression lied. The other thing was the, the, the killing and the raping. That was just a manifestation of the sin he had already committed. Um, a few months ago, I had somebody come to my office and they confessed that they were having an affair. Um, and it actually said the, the affair just ended. And... This, this married woman whom he was having the affair with broke it off. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm confessing this to you. I'm repenting of this. But one of the things he kept saying is, I'm so scared of when I'm going to meet this husband again. When, when I meet that husband, I'm terrified of what's going to happen. It's like, you know, I've, I've, I've emailed the husband, I've tried calling the husband, trying to, to tell him how I've wronged him, how I've sinned against him. And he said, but he said, I can't sleep at night. It, it consumes my every thought. What's going to happen? Because one day we are going to meet again. And I looked at him and I said, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you never repented. It's like, what do you mean I haven't repented? <laughs> yes, I have. I said, no, you're, you're trying to repent this way. Before you've repented this way. You've sinned against God. Your creator is who you've sinned against. You realize that that sin put Jesus on the cross. I tell you, once you have dealt with God, once once you have felt the shame of your sin and at the same time the acceptance of God coming from his forgiveness, once that has truly gripped your heart, you're not going to fear meeting that husband. You need to repent to the Lord. 
prodigal son here, he knew that it was against God primarily that he had sinned. And that this had manifested itself in how he had acted with his father. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say, God, if you had to live with a jerk brother like that, you'd want to get out of the house too. No, he just says it's sin. Jesus forgives sins, but he does not forgive excuses. In verse 19, this younger brother plans on telling his father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. This is true, he's not. He's actually lost his inheritance. He's already told his dad, you're as good as dead to me. He's no longer a son. Even when he comes back and there's rejoicing, his father tells the older brother, says, your brother was dead, but is now alive. So he is seen as dead. He has lost his sonship here. But he comes up with a plan and he says, I'm going to ask my dad to treat me like a hired servant. And a hired servant is actually less than a slave. A slave got to live in the house. A hired servant did not. It was just a a, a day, you would just hire them for the day to come in and do the task of a slave, but then they were on their own for shelter and for food. But he's thinking, I'm going to ask my father for that. And what I think is going on here is he's becoming religious. He wants to now work for his dad's approval. He wants to start paying back this debt that he owes. So that's what I need to do. I need to start working. I need to turn my life around, you know. Start doing good. Show my dad that I I am. I'm I'm responsible and I'm going to start paying off this debt. And he approaches his father just like a religious person, person approaches God. God says, no. You're approaching me like I need something. You cannot earn my affection. I give it freely. Well, he's coming home and his father sees him in a very undignified way, runs after him. Patriarchs of a family don't run like this, but he does. I know that there's a number of you who uh, have siblings who I guess you would call a prodigal. Um, who have caused your family lots of pain. Maybe it's through you know, some alcoholism or drug addiction or just really stupid choices. They have hurt your family. They always make horrible decisions and they've gone off. When that person comes back knocking on your family's door, do, do you ever, does it ever even cross your mind that they're coming back to repent? It doesn't cross my mind. Every time they come back, I'm thinking, they're coming back because they need me to bail them out. They're coming back because they need money. That's that's all they ever want. That's what the track record says. And I'm certain that the father was thinking that when he sees his son coming back in all those ragged clothes. Here he's coming to ask for more money. To ask me to bail him out. But the father doesn't care. He runs and embraces him anyway. More than that, he says, get get my best robe and put it on him, which would have been his robe. Then he says, get get a ring and put it on his finger. Now the ring 
would have had the family emblem on it, the family seal. And so what you're doing is you're restoring sonship there. It says, go kill the fatted calf. And the Pharisees and scribes, they would have, they would have been outraged when they heard this. They would have been absolutely furious. I mean, the father should at least make sure that the guy's changed his heart should, should at least, you know, make sure he's turned over a new leaf. Make sure he's at least sorry. And then you should even make him pay. You don't just welcome the person back. You're just, you're just making the problem worse. And not only the Pharisees would have been shocked, but the sinners, the tax collectors, they would have been equally shocked. Because the father doesn't make the son grovel at his feet. He doesn't once say, I told you so. I always knew you'd come crawling back here. He just simply accepts him before he even knows anything about the son. He does not wait for his son to show that he has pulled his life together before he embraces him. When the father kills the fattened calf, that means he is throwing an extravagant, extravagant feast and party. The entire village comes when he killed the fatted calf. There was going to be a huge party. And I'm sure the Pharisees' blood is boiling as they hear this. Now notice with all three parables, they all went in basically with a party and rejoicing. Every one of these. You know, you have um, the, the lost sheep come back, there's rejoicing. And you have the lost coin and there's rejoicing. And there's all this rejoicing here. But... Here there's something different. There's a difference in this story than the other ones. And I don't know if you you caught it. There is rejoicing in this one as well. But in the other stories, someone went out to find who was lost. When, When the sheep was lost, it says that, you know, the, the shepherd left the 99 and went looking all over and would not rest until he found the one. Puts that one on his back, comes back, big old party. When the coin is lost, lamps are lit, the woman's looking everywhere, would not rest until the coin is found. Here you have the prodigal son go off, and no one runs after him. He's just off. There's, there's nobody out looking you know, from town to town trying to find him. There's nobody going to the pigsties trying to find him. There's none of that out there. There's this obvious part of the story that's that's different, that's missing. The elder brother should have been the one who was doing it. He was the one responsible for his younger brother. He should have been the one out there looking. But he doesn't. Instead, you know, he's, he's home too busy burning CDs or, you know, doing whatever it is. Getting rid of the the presence of his, you know, immoral brother. Good riddance. Being all self-righteous. The elder brother knew. If he comes back, it's going to cost me. We're going to look a lot more at this next week. But if he comes back, it's going to cost me. The, the, The robe that was put on him. You know, it says it would as likely his father's robe, but you know what? That's really his robe because the inheritance has already been divided. 
Everything that's left in that household is, is his or will be his. The ring put on his finger, that's the elder brother's. Restoring him back to sonship means he now gets another third of the estate that comes out of the older brother. His blood is boiling because he knows when his younger brother comes, it's going to cost him. A fatted calf is expensive. Jesus, I think as he was telling the story, people would have been, they would have noticed that. They would have wondered at the difference. And then they would have looked at Jesus and they would have seen, you're who the elder brother was supposed to be in the story. You're you're the son of the father who actually went out to bring back the lost. That's who you are. You're the one who, who, who pursued us at all cost. And actually, for you to bring us back into a relationship with the Father would cost you severely, cost you your very life. Jesus gave his life as a ransom to get us back. Jesus allowed himself to be rejected by the Father so we would not have to be rejected by the Father. He's what the older brother should have been. You know, I asked a question weeks ago. If sinners, tax collectors, were so drawn to Jesus, why is it that they are not drawn to his church? I think this story gives us the answer, and we'll look at it more next week. It's because we are much more like the older brother than we are the Lord. People like being around Jesus because Jesus knew how to party. He knew how to give joy and acceptance. We like to cast stones and give judgment, pat ourselves on the back, think we're doing so well. But all the while, we are just as self-centered, just as distant from our Father as this prodigal child. Pray with me. Lord, teach us what repentance is that we have sinned against you. You alone. Teach us what it means to come to you and to be your child. When we look at this younger son, we certainly see that it was not his bad works that kept him from you. That wasn't it. You pursued him despite his sin. When we look at the older brother, though, it was his good works that kept him from you. So God, we come to you not offering anything good. We come to you with empty hands, knowing that we have no righteousness on our own. We come to you like the prodigal, and we ask that you would clothe us with your coat. Dress us with your righteousness. Put on us a ring of sonship, purely by your grace. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.